0: And a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Matt Milner. Matt is Associate Professor of Art History at Wheaton College. He teaches across the range of art history with an eye for the prospects and pitfalls of visual theology. He holds an MA and PhD in art history from Princeton University and an MDiv from Princeton Theological Seminary. He's also a dear friend. I give you Matt Milner. Matt, welcome to the podcast, my friend. This is the first time you've been on Synaxis, and also it's the first Easter Sunday you've been a preacher, right, in a congregational context.
1: This would be true, and I was really disappointed when you contacted me because I was looking forward to listening to Synaxis, to picking up tips, and now here I am the guest. But I've been thinking about these texts for a while, thinking about this upcoming day. So hopefully we'll be able to have some fruitful interchange about this trivergence of glorious passages.
0: Now, are you going to preach on all three texts? Are you going to focus on one? I mean, what's your plan for this coming Easter?
1: (sighs) Yeah. And you can do some switch-outs there um, at least that seems to be one lectionary option. And Sarah Hinlicky Wilson just posted a beautiful little piece on Mockingbird where she talked about the injustice of not having an Old Testament reading of switching it out and just having Acts and First Corinthians and John. And I take her point seriously. She's like, you got to have law to have gospel. But one slight pushback I'd say is that, hey, I mean, if you read Luther, law and gospel is not neatly divided between the Old and New Testament. There's gospel in the Old, there's law in the New. And so it doesn't mean that you can't find the law and gospel dynamic if you go for the three New Testament readings. And of course, you have Psalm 118 to ground you in the Old Testament. So I'm not, I am not—I don't feel like that decision to go all New Testament, um, her counsel notwithstanding necessarily sinks the ship. So yeah, I'm going, I'm going Acts because that was, that was what it was assigned to me. Acts, Psalm 118 and 1 Corinthians 15 and John 20.
0: So in our first text, we have Peter here in Acts 10. Kind of slowly learning the the radical inclusive nature of the gospel and how the 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 crucified and risen Jesus makes a new humanity and he is you know expressing that what w- was you know seemingly meant for evil uh, the, the the death of the Lord was actually God's way of forgiving a, and reforming a people and I was thinking about your own biography as, as I was looking at the text you're at Wheaton College one of the premier evangelical schools. and you you've been kind of involved in some attempts to in this evangelical institution you know you spent some time in in your own life uh, helping sort through what this kind of unity across cultures and and ideologies means you want to say a little bit about that
1: right and this is it, the divisions in the body of Christ, whatever they might be over any issue, it's hard not to let this resound, almost functioning as um, stitchings, um, he, bringing those wounds together. So that's the first thing that did strike me about it: is that the unification, and this is not just a Pauline theme here, of course, it's a Petrine theme, right? Is that there? The whoever does what is, what is right is acceptable to him, a unification, and then what, particularly struck me about it scott is that there's a lot of people who throw around critiques about the apostles creed and the nicene creed and they say oh well you know the problem is there's nothing about his ministry and then you know richard Rohr says oh what that that huge comma that does so much work um that does, that's the only moment that anything about his life is he's He's born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Like we do we so much emphasis is placed on that comma. But here in the Acts passage, which is superior to the creed, right? Because it's scripture. You have all that stuff emphasized. The message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John announced. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. How he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did. Not just the resurrection, right? Then then he goes into the the crucifixion and resurrection. So all that stuff that so many people have called for, it's just this reminder. There it is. This is a necessary supplement to the creed that gets attention, of course, every Sunday. But this this trumps it, it prioritizes over the creed. So I that's one of the things that struck me about her. And, and I mean, and again, but the beautiful thing about my task is I'm not preaching to Wheaton College, I'm preaching to our local Anglican church, and we have things that divide us as well. And so... What
0: divides you guys?
1: Things that divide many churches, questions about women in ministry, questions in particular right now, um, and we're working through that as a congregation. And as we think that through, um, there's a. this is a particularly important passage for that issue, especially John 20, of course. And there's a temptation to, in some senses, take a sign and push in one direction or the other. And as I worked through the sermon, I thought, well, you know, is this... And I'm like, no, let the resurrection do the talking and don't take an Easter morning sermon and turn it into something that's going to weigh in on one side or the other. Take an Easter morning sermon, preach what the scriptures say, and in some senses, those divisions can be healed through the power of the resurrection as it's preached clearly and vociferously. So that's, that's what I've been struggling with in the early phases of preparation for this. And I think in any sermon that people work on, sometimes you think, all right, I'm going to come out blazing on one side or the other. But then as it, as it goes through the draft process, you realize you'll say a lot more to people by letting those issues be, in some senses, subterranean and letting the gospel do the work. So that was kind of, I had some immaturity as I worked through this. I'm like, well, this is the, the lodestone passage. I'm going to I'm gonna run with it. And then I realized, no, um, the Holy Spirit, I think, is a lot cleverer than that. And not that there aren't times where you have to take an issue head on, but all of a sudden, these divisive issues took a back seat and the the proclamation of the resurrection, one way I have thought about formulating it is that Mary Magdalene doesn't head out preaching the gospel of women's ordination. I've heard Tish Harrison Warren, an Anglican priest, say something like that as well. I did not get ordained to talk about why women should be ordained. I got ordained to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Mary Magdalene is after in that John 20 passage. And I think above all, if you look at that passage in detail, she is clinging to a false gospel in the first part of it. And I think, oh, well, I jumped ahead. I, I want to get to the John 20 good stuff. Not that Acts isn't good.
0: Yeah, and one thing I'm struck by is that is that the church is always on the way, right? That that, that This revelation to Peter, which is good news, it's fantastic news, it's amazing news that this new humanity is revealed, and yet you got to live into it. You got to grow into it, right? We're always on the way. And the, the the resurrection implications are often scandalous to the church to this day. And, and we're kind of always learning to live into the scandal, right?
1: Yeah. It's not, it's not resolved yet, but it has broken. But the first burst has come through the clouds. And that's, I mean, of all the mornings to emphasize that this coming morning is the morning i mean i'm with you scott right it's not yet but this is the already morning this is the time where we really have to let this burst into the pulpit with a degree of joy with a degree of proclaiming boisterousness so that's i don't know i mean i'm 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 with you on that but i think there needs to be some fire in the pulpit
0: Of a fiery proclamation here in First Corinthians 15, we have Paul in conclusion just talking about the cosmic again effects of the resurrection and how everything will eventually be made new and God will be all in all. Yeah, you know when Paul makes that comes to the crescendo of his argument here, I, I I think of that line from N.T. Wright that resurrection isn't life after death; it's life after life after death. And here, I mean, he's not presenting the opiate to the people, you know, like some kind of shallow Marxist reading of this text might think. But here he's actually saying that if this is true, if it's not true, we're to be pitied, but if it's true, then we're sort of the first fruits of the renovation, recreation, you know, the new creation, and it, in, right in the midst of the this should have deep, practical, existential yeah. import for how we live in the nitty-gritty in the here and now, Right.
1: Exactly. I remember James Forbes, who is a pastor of Riverside Church in New York, and I would just have assumed that everything, because this is a famous, on the liberal side of the fundamentalist modernist controversy, on the modernist side, and, and I, would, I would have assumed that he was purely about social justice and not about the gospel proclamation. And then I heard him say um, that in one, of, I think it was his in job his job interview, he said, um, they asked him point blank, do you believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? And then he started to list all the social ministries that he was involved in. And it's like, well, that's obviously a dodge of an answer. He's just taking this question, do you believe in the physical resurrection? And he's starting to list all, but then, then he finished the answer. He said, and I'm doing this with the poor, and I'm involved in this ministry, and I'm working with these oppressed groups, and then dot, dot, dot. And so, of course, I believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus. Why do you think I would bother with all that if I didn't have the hope of the resurrection? That always struck me as a glorious answer.
0: I've heard William Wilmon say something about the importance of, of, of the creed, you know, the great mysteries of the creed. He says, well, you know, if we can get you to believe in the virgin birth and that Jesus rose from the dead, I mean, you will believe anything. Next thing we can tell you is that the meek shall inherit the earth and the lion will lay down with the lamb. I mean, the, these these mysteries are just the, the initiation rites into you know, the really crazy teachings we have.
1: Isn't that true? Yeah, that's that's right. Because it's a, a sense to a fact is one thing, um, but being drawn into it, recruited into the mission is another and maybe that needs to be um sort of a we need to have like a drafting force like not only did this thing happen but this is going to alter your year this is going to alter the way you live your life because of not in spite of the fact that this is true but because of the fact that it's true and i really i mean of all the things you want i want to say to people you you can have it all there really was a moment in it's just a peculiar moment may it be as old fashioned as those big fat TVs that people still put out in their yards to be hopefully taken away by the garbage trucks um replaced by the flat screen like may this this weird moment in history where we had to pick between well i believe in the physical resurrection and i believe in the empowering message of the resurrection and the um, social implications and the and the deep existential spiritual meaning? Why did we have to pick one or the other? To divide those is the most ridiculous division imaginable. They're completely united. And it is absurd to me. I mean, these silly formulas like Willie Markson's, the message of Christ goes on, like the kerygma is risen. No, you can have everything. You can have the complete... And, once, like about 10 years ago, or maybe 15 years ago, for goodness sakes, I just I put it, I formulated it in in a in a quiz question. And I said, look, well, no, I just put it on my blog like a long time ago. I was just so annoyed with this debate. And I said, okay, one quiz, a multiple choice question. Here it is, okay? The resurrection of Jesus Christ was A, not historical, okay. B, historical. C, more than historical. D, both B and C. That is both historical and more than historical. That's the simple quiz
0: question. So I, I can't say all the above here, right? I can't do that?
1: No, 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 no. you can't say that. But that's not an option. All of the above is not an option. It's you because you can't pick not historical. That's not an option. You've got to pick B. And, well, let, let me emphasize that. It's got to be, it's both historical and more than historical like and the the great case for historical is the john updike poem seven stanzas at easter it it runs through social media all the time and i've literally i mean it's a great poem you know it make no mistake if he rose at all it was as his body if the cells dissolution did not reverse the molecules re the amino acids rekindle the church will fall right That's the historical emphasis. And then people see...
0: Yeah, because if if it's not at least historical, then it can't redeem us in the everyday nitty-gritty mundaneness of of our broken-hearted, broken lives, right? But if it's not also more than historical, it's just we're back to sort of one damn thing after the other. Nothing's really changed. But if it's historical and more than historical, not only does it speak to the deepest, darkest tragedies in human existence but also it's the promise that there is a future where there will be no more crying and no more dying that that, that our redemption is really it, it involves the promise that the best is yet to come
1: right and that's exactly that's why the answer is it's both historical and more than historical it's both factual and existential why do we have to pick why do we have to read Posts about people, well, oh, John Updike is too physically focused. What about the spiritual body? You can have it all. You can have both of those. You have to have a double-barreled Easter message. Two shafts of the shotgun. One with the f- actual facts of the resurrection. Acts is not a poem. It's not a, a novel. It's a reporting. It's journalism. And then the other, all of what this means for your own life. <laughs> it's exactly what's not. That's the beauty of it. That's what it's not. It's in, in a, a world of fake news. This we can actually count on. This is the one thing that we can say. Um, if this didn't happen, everything's useless. And it did.
0: gospel reading. We have John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Here we have Mary Magdalene discovering the empty tomb and having this mysterious encounter with the risen Lord.
1: And she's the one. She gets it. And she clings. Mary... Kling, uh, I love this from Dale Bruner. We celebrate Mathean morality, Pauline grace, Johannine sublimity, but we should also celebrate Magdalenic fidelity, Magdalene fidelity, Magdalene, right, exactly. She's the, this is, this is her account that bursts through the Johannine account and other accounts as well. And it's undeniable and it's force. And she, the whole, and her whole, she stays with him all the way. And, she, and the beginning of this passage in John, she holds on to her self-actualization message, to her personal pep talk, to her, this is what I can do for Jesus. It's all going to be okay. I'll pull myself up by my own bootstraps. And what that is, is they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they had laid. She has hypnotized herself with her fake news false gospel that i can at least help him out a little bit i can uh, i can i can nurse his wounds i can um, maybe just attend to his dead body and the whole passage is her waking up out of that self delusion even the angel is incapable of snapping her out of it and then finally the voice of jesus the resurrected jesus himself is the only thing that can snap her out of her gospel into his which is real which is true and that
0: Yeah, that's incredibly profound. That's really well said. I mean, that she, her desire to kind of cling to him is, that has to give way to... Yeah, his gospel, which is is really the good news she need and the good news that that we all need.
1: But and that's what what maybe what's interesting about that that Bruner line aside, maybe she's not being faithful here. Maybe I mean she is she's being faithful to what she thinks happened, which isn't enough. Again, she's going there to be, in some sense, as a good Samaritan to the dead Jesus.
0: Yeah, and and her fidelity, her faithfulness, is met by his greater faithfulness, right? And that's um, that's I suppose that's the encounter we all need.
1: Whatever your false gospel is right now, whatever your equivalent to, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She's confused. She is in the fog of grief. She's trying to do something good. I think a lot of us live our life there, and there's different interventions in our life to try to snap us out of that. And then it's this person that she thinks is the gardener, right? First, first there's an angel. Why are you weeping, right? Um, and then she what, is she, what is her response? They have taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. False gospel again, right? And then the, Jesus comes to her, woman, why are you weeping? And then she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, right? She thinks it's the gardener. And then the only wake up is Mary. Wait. I don't think it's a sweet Mary or, or, or a whisper. Mary, I think it's a Mary, wake up. Don't, and then that's, then she, and then the, oh, rabbi oh, she has to snap out of it. And there are people in the pews that need to snap out of something other than the gospel that they're swimming in every day of their lives. I think that's what this passage is saying. And she's so overcome by that. And then she clings to him. And then he says, don't touch me. And if anything has come forth from these commentaries, it is that don't make the mistake of thinking that that is Jesus saying, hey, woman, back off. There's there's no reason exegetically to to believe that the reason, right. Or it, it could be that I like that Wait and come closer, but it could also, and I think what's really clear is that it's not um, as one commentator puts it, it's not prohibitive. It's durative. Like, in other words, she clings to him, like, you know, that hug that, you know, someone holds on a little bit too long. And, and he's like, Hey, yeah, Mary, we got things to do. I need you to go tell the brothers. So it's not like, He's like get away from me woman and that's unfortunate.
0: Yeah, I mean it's also maybe like a, a, a child that that wants to cling in a vulnerable moment to their parent forever and and it's not that the parent doesn't love the child right but the child knows the parent knows that the child has more to live into right there's there's more that that that, that, that they can be more lovely, more lovable and more loving as if, as they grow. Right.
1: Exactly. Yes. Because I want to hug Thomas, too. I want Thomas to come in here and, and put, because he's the one who's not in your situation. He needs to snap out of his false gospel. And I want him to put his fingers in, in my wounds. And, and uh, uh, sometimes people contrast the two of those. See, like, he pushes away Mary Magdalene, and he says, Thomas, come close, because, of course, Thomas is the male apostle, and she's not. But, of course, she's the apostle to the apostles in this passage. And the ancient church recognized that. They called her Isapostolos, Apostolos, the equal to the apostles. Or the apostle to the apostles, and so there's a sense in which I don't think there's nothing about that famous tradition of Do not touch me that should be seen as prohibitive or pushing her away. I think it's almost maybe said with laughter, like, Oh, <laughs> all right, come on, I've got a job for you and so there, there's the joy in the passage, and, and I, I would be if I was a pastor I'd be and I'd be sniffing out. What is that false message that she that the people in your congregation what is the equivalent to they have taken the lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him that is there's there's two Mary Magdalenes in this passage there's that one right and then there's the one after the awakening and what awakens her is the voice of the shepherd that calls her name so somehow the people in the, in, in the pews and the first of foremost, the preacher needs to hear Jesus calling their name, right? Same gospel, John chapter 10, 10 chapters before the sheep hear their name. And that's what snaps her out of it. And there's a, we got to wake up. And that's what this wake up call of the East of, of John 20 is. And then we get our mission. And if any don't get hung up on the, I'm ascending to my father and your father to, to my God and your God. I would looked at the, um, Raymond Brown commentary, the great commentary, and he's really clear. He's like, look, some people say that, you know, it's like, when is the ascension going to happen is that he's going to go up and ascend and come back down before he meets with the apostles. So he's, and he's like, don't get caught up with too tight of a chronology in John. John always uses time for theological import. So he said, don't worry about that. He just realize, I know that's a mystery when the ascension happens in the gospel of John, he said, just let the force of this passage be there. That he has this encounter with her, and also realize the extraordinary art historical and traditional history of Mary, essentially going into prostitute phase. From Pope Greg, it was there was kind of division as to whether or not she was the woman who anointed the feet, the prostitute, right? And then there's conflicting witness in the early church, and then Pope Gregory the says, Pope Gregory the Great says that um, she. Is the the prostitute? So she becomes Mary Magdalene, the penitent, and that lasts, believe it or not, until 1969 when Pope Paul VI finally reverses that based on exegetical grounds. So you don't know; we don't know that she's necessarily the prostitute. And so now,
0: you know, I heard the great Reverend Doctor John Galloway. He's a retired Presbyterian minister now, Princeton Seminary board member, great, great preacher. And I heard him. Well, first off, on Easter, the best thing I ever, I, I ever saw him do was he, you know, on Easter Sunday, I mean, Wayne Press, where he was pastor, was a pretty big church, but of course it swelled like three times its normal attendance because it's Easter. He got up there and said, hey, great news. Uh, great to see y'all here. We have church next week too, <laughs> which I thought was uh, <laughs> was amazing. But he also, also with regard to the multiple Marys and is Mary Magdalene a prostitute and how textually, you know, there's not really evidence for that. He said that, you know, he imagined though that, that the two Marys would meet uh, in, in the kingdom, uh, you know, in the heavenly kingdom. And Mary Magdalene saying to the, pro- to the prostitute, it's been an honor to over the years to have been associated and identified w- with you uh, in the fellowship of, of our risen Lord.
1: Wait, so he? you're saying that he imagined Mary Magdalene encountering the prostitute in heaven? Yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Oh my gosh, that preaches, Scott. Wow, wow.
0: Yeah and I hope that uh, all our listeners uh, that that will ha- will have a Mary Magdalene where the faithfulness of Jesus uh, is the risen Jesus where his faithfulness uh, embraces their own faith transforms it emboldens it and and lifts it up uh, into his life. Thanks so much for doing this Matt, and blessings to our listeners. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis podcast. If you like what you heard please go to iTunes, give it a rating Write a review and subscribe or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Matt for coming on the podcast and thanks to you for listening to Synaxis. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.